Last week we looked at the first half of this 10th chapter. And so this week we pick up at verse 14 to look at the second portion of Romans chapter 10. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth. And their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says... All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make your word true and alive to us. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word would take deep root in our lives that it would be used to make us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would indeed show us who you are and what duty you require of us. Lord, bless us as we hear from you in your word. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we pick up here again in Romans chapter 10. And in this chapter, Paul is continuing with his evangelistic theme. In what is perhaps known as the most doctrinally full book in all of the Bible, Paul is asking two sets of very practical questions. Two sets of questions in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And as we pick it up here in our text, these two sets of questions are these. First... Do you know the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is? Have you believed the gospel? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? And then secondly, a second set of questions is this. If you have believed upon the gospel, are you telling others about the gospel? It's not enough that you know the gospel. You must share the gospel with others. And so... Paul has been reminding us of this and spurring us on to this. 
in the beginning of chapter 10, he reminded us about the righteousness that is by faith. And that that righteousness is for everyone. And so that's why in verse 13, Paul can say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so now Paul is going to tell us why some do not call on the name of the Lord. And in that, he is going to tell us what we must do to call on the name of the Lord. And so I'd like us, in the midst of all of the questions that Paul will ask, to ask two of our own and answer them this morning. First, how does the gospel come to us? How is it that the gospel comes to us in our experience Second, what happens when the gospel comes? What difference does the gospel make? How does it affect us? How does it affect others around us? What is the effect of the gospel? These two questions. How does the gospel come to us? And what happens when the gospel comes? Well, let's start by taking up our first question, how the gospel comes to us. And the very first thing that I want us to see is that the gospel comes to those who believe. Beginning in verse 14, Paul asks a series of questions in verses 14 through 15. And they form a chain of how the gospel comes to us. Now what Paul does is, he begins with his first question at the end of the chain, at the result, at the answer, and he works his way back up to the source. And so we're going to do a similar sort of analysis. We're going to start from the result of the gospel coming to us, and then to move up the chain to see how it indeed comes in the path to us. And so Paul asks these questions, how will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? That is the chain that Paul puts before us. It is important for us to see the entirety of the chain, both for ourselves, and so we know how to bring the gospel to others. And this chain actually starts in verse 13. Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I want us to see two things. One that is explicitly stated, and one that is implied. First, Paul says directly that everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Now this is a statement and it is also a promise. Notice the word that is used here. Will be saved. Paul doesn't say might. He doesn't say could. He says will. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will, with a sense of certainty, will be saved. Salvation follows upon calling on the Lord. But there's something also that's implied here in Paul's statement. That is, in order to be saved, we must call on the Lord. There is no other way to be saved but to call on the Lord. And that's actually what Paul has been saying throughout this entire letter. As recently, as earlier in this chapter, he's never implied that there is any other way of salvation apart from Jesus Christ. 
There is no distinction, Paul says, actually in verse 12, between the Gentile or the Jew. There is one Lord over all, and all are saved by calling on that one Lord. It is by confessing that Jesus is Lord, and by believing that He has been raised from the dead, that we are saved. Paul says this directly in verse 9. And so we must understand that salvation is calling on Jesus Christ. You must confess that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself. You have to call on Jesus to save you. That's salvation. Then Paul asks the first question up the chain. He says, how will they call on him if they do not believe? Now remember, this is still in the context of answering the larger question before Paul of why Israel and others are not saved. And this is a very obvious question that Paul poses. How can you call on someone that you don't know? How can you ask Jesus to save you from your sins unless you know that he is the Savior? And so calling on Jesus Christ comes from our will. It is something we must determine to do. We must trust that Jesus is able to save us. We have to cast ourselves on Jesus. But there is also an element of the mind that is involved here. We have to know who Jesus is and what he has done to find salvation. Now, it is common in our day and age to speak of not divorcing the heart from salvation. You may have heard the phrase that someone has missed salvation by 18 inches from the head to the heart. And that certainly is true. We can't just have a knowledge of salvation. We must commit to Christ. We must trust Him from the heart. But you also cannot divorce the mind from salvation. Because vague notions do not save us. You need to know about Jesus in order to know Jesus. Now, it is not enough just to know about Jesus Christ, but in order to know Him personally as your Savior, you have to begin with knowing about Him, who He is, what He has done. This is part of the chain to knowing Jesus. And this is so because the gospel is fact-based. It is an historical Message, unless you understand the facts of the life and death of Jesus, what follows is not true faith in Christ. Unless we proclaim these facts about Jesus, our message is not the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to know everything that is in the Bible. It doesn't mean you have to know all the details about Jesus. But it does mean you have to know who Jesus is. That he's God come in the flesh. And you have to know what Jesus has done. That he has purchased salvation for sinners by his death. And you have to know how it applies to you. You have to be able to say, I am a sinner. And I am in need of saving. The gospel comes to those who believe, who know about Jesus and know what he has done and understand that before they can call upon the Lord. Paul then proceeds up the next 
link in the chain by asking the next question. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now, if you must call on Jesus to be saved, and if you have to believe in Jesus to call upon him, how do you come to believe in him? Now, in the first matter, this is just a common sense question. It is true, isn't it, that you don't know what you don't know. Right? We can never be sure of the things that we don't know. There's all, that's the definition of not knowing something. And so in order to believe something, we need to have it presented to us so that we can know it and understand it. But there is another sense in which Paul's statement is true. It follows from what Paul has been saying throughout this letter. Because we are sinners, we are ignorant of Jesus and our need for him. We are lost. We are, the Bible says, dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't seek after God. And so that means, if we are to believe the gospel, the gospel has to come to us. And in order for it to come to us, someone needs to bring it to us. This is what Paul is getting at in his next two questions in verse 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, this is important in two respects. First, Paul completely rejects the modern notion that everyone is just fine and they'll go to heaven. We see this all the time. People don't think they need any kind of special message from God. They think that they just follow the basic principles of life and they do what everybody knows that they'll be just fine. And that's why the world rejects the exclusivity of Jesus. They think, I don't need to know anything specific. I don't need to know Jesus. As long as I operate by the general principles of life and I'm basically more good than bad, I'll be fine. I'll go to heaven. They don't need to know Jesus. They don't need to believe in Jesus. They don't need to call on Him. That is what the world thinks. But God's Word tells us that this is dangerously wrong. It tells us that only those who call on the Lord will be saved. That is why we must know and believe in Jesus. And that is why we must hear about Jesus. Now, there is a second thing that Paul is getting at here. In order for someone to hear about Christ, someone must preach Christ to them. And this is where Paul is expressing the absolute necessity of preaching. In fact, he is linking preaching to hearing. Now, that's not to say that there are no other valid forms of communicating the gospel. After all, Paul is writing a letter here for us. But the preeminent way of telling others about Jesus is preaching. And so for someone to believe the gospel, they must be told the gospel. And over and over again in the Bible, the main way of being told the gospel is through preaching. They are so linked that the word for preach means to announce or to herald something. Now, what do you announce 
or proclaim? You proclaim the news. What news here? Why, of course, the good news. The good news of the gospel. That's why preaching is so important. It is bringing the gospel to those who hear so that they will believe and will call upon the name of the Lord. This is why we take preaching very seriously. It's why a great deal of effort is expended in preaching, not just by the preacher, but by the hearer also. That's why the Bible is what is proclaimed from this pulpit, not culture, not politics, not news. We are to preach the gospel to God's people. And this is why you should take preaching very seriously. Do you think about this as the way you hear the gospel? Do you think about preaching as the way that Jesus is brought to you? Do you think about preaching as the means you need to call upon the Lord for all of your needs? Preaching is the God-ordained means. We must be thankful for it. So why does Paul place all this emphasis on preaching? We see that in his fourth question in verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You see, the preacher doesn't come with his own message. He's not on his own authority. In fact, Paul asks, how can someone preach if they're not sent? Preachers are heralds. They announce the good news. They don't get to decide what the news is. Heralds are commissioned, usually by a king, to bring his news to the people. The same thing is true of preachers. God sends the messenger, and if he doesn't, the message itself will not be blessed. No herald ever appointed himself. In the same way, no preacher ever appointed himself and his message. The preacher is appointed and sent by God with God's message for his people. This is exactly what Jesus was getting at when he said in Matthew 9... That we are to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Now think about that. It is the Lord of the harvest that sends the workers out. If the harvest is to be gathered in, we must be sent by the Lord. The Lord sends his people out into the harvest. It's exactly what happened with Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 as they were sent out amongst the Gentiles. They were sent out with a commission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It's also the same reason that the prophets in the Old Testament were sent to Israel to proclaim the Lord God and His grace. God is the initiator of His message. He sends His messengers. What that means is, if people are to be saved, they must hear the gospel. We cannot do it in our own way. We must do it in God's way. And God's way is through preaching, Paul says. 
Now, interestingly, if we look at verse 14, Paul asks this question. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now, this is a perfectly fine translation, but there is some nuance in this verse. Because prepositions are a tricky thing in the original Greek language, we could also translate this. And how are they to believe him whom they have never heard? You see, the in doesn't need to go with the him here. And the of does not need to be in this translation. Because the word for hearing naturally takes an of. You hear from someone, in other words. So we could just as easily say, how are they to believe Jesus if they have not heard Jesus? Now, this points to Jesus being the one who is speaking through the preacher. This is God's means of reaching his people. Have you ever had the experience of saying to a pastor, you know, that sermon was just for me. Or, you know, this morning you were talking directly to me. Or perhaps if you're amongst the more humorous amongst us, you would say something like, Pastor, were you spying on me this week? Because it seems like everything that you said applied directly to what I'm going through. Now, it's, I can tell you this, it is no particular insight on the pastor's part. And I am not following you with cameras. No, that is the work of the Lord through his preacher applying the word to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus speaking. You cannot say, I've never heard Jesus. You know, I think sometimes we might say, we've never heard Jesus because he hasn't spoken audibly to me. I wish I could hear God. I wish I would hear an audible voice telling me what to do. Beloved, you hear from Jesus all the time. You're hearing from him right now. Through me and through the Apostle Paul. Through the word of God, you are hearing not just a man speak, you are hearing God speak. And that's not on my authority. It's not on my eloquence. It's because God is so determined to use preachers to bring his word to his people. That's why preachers are such a blessing to God's people. That's why Paul can say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is how the gospel comes to us. That brings us then to our second question. What happens when the gospel comes to us? And that brings us back to the initial context for this entire discussion by Paul. Why haven't the Jews believed the gospel? You may remember he asked, is it because the word of God has failed? Certainly not, Paul says. Do they not know about the righteousness of faith? No, Paul says. But you see, we can explore this question, even in our own context, apart from the Jews of Paul's day. We could ask ourselves, why doesn't everyone believe the gospel? Why would someone not want to be saved? Is it God's fault for not bringing it to them? Is it the church's fault for not being a good example for them? Is it the preacher's fault? For bringing the word badly to them. 
we might think to ourselves, surely no one would consciously choose condemnation and death over life and forgiveness, right? So Paul starts out by making a very plain statement in verse 16. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. This was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. But Paul is also reminding us that it was true in Isaiah's day. And he does this by quoting Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1 in the form of a question. He says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now the answer is clear. Even though Isaiah was sent by God, even though Isaiah preached the message of God, and even though the people heard it, they did not believe. Now, it's easy to think that the gospel was a failure at this point. Why is the gospel not effective? Who is to blame here? And Paul answers this through a series of questions and quotes from the Bible. First, he asks, is it just that people have not heard? Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Now, this is an interesting question. It is presuming a negative answer. Now, it's a bit confusing because of all the negatives going on here. Something like, isn't it not true that they have not heard? The question underlying it is, they've surely heard about this, haven't they? And Paul says, yes, of course, indeed. He's already hinted at this. With this quote from Isaiah. Isaiah says, I brought the message to them. It was delivered. They did not listen to the message and they did not believe what they heard. And so Paul then quotes from Psalm 19, verse 4, in verse 18. He says, Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, if you are an astute Bible student, you will look at this and you will say, But pastor... Psalm 19 is talking about creation speaking. It's talking about natural revelation. The sun and the moon. It's not talking about preachers and preaching. What is Paul doing here? What Paul's doing here is he is using an illustration from the scriptures of how powerfully the gospel message has gone out. It is actually like the witness of creation. It is everywhere. You can't escape it. Just like everyone looks up in the sky and sees the sun and sees that it is the perfect distance from the earth. Just like everyone looks up in the sky and sees the moon and understands the order of creation and that speaks of a creator in the same way the gospel has gone out throughout all of the world. Now, think about Christian missions. Of course, there is always more to be done. There are some people groups that have not yet been reached with the gospel. But in the main, when we speak of them, they're the exception to the rule. It's some small tribe in some hinterland place with a language we don't know yet, and we're actively trying to bring them the gospel. But really, the message of the gospel has gone throughout the whole world. It's gone even to remote places like the jungles of Africa like the mountains of Asia. It's gone into closed countries like Japan and China. It's gone to previously undiscovered places like America and Australia. The excuse cannot be that the gospel is not available to be heard. The gospel has gone out throughout all the world. So second, 
Paul asks another question. But I ask, in verse 19, did Israel not understand? Paul asks, maybe it's that the people just don't understand the gospel. Now Paul answers this question with two quotes. One from the law and one from the prophets. Now what you have to understand here is Paul is using the law and the prophets as a summary of all of the New Testament. Because that's how the, or excuse me, the Old Testament. That's how the Old Testament is described, the law and the prophets. We might think of it this way. When you go out for a wonderful full course meal, you say you had everything from soup to nuts. You may not mention the salad. You may not mention the meat. You may not talk about the sides. But when you say from soup to nuts, what's implied is from everything from beginning of the meal to the end of the meal, the whole meal. That's what Paul's doing here with the Old Testament. He's saying all of the Old Testament speaks to this. And so he starts from Deuteronomy chapter 32, quoting Moses. He says, I will make you, a, make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And so what he does here is shows that Israel would be provoked to jealousy and to anger because another nation would receive the grace and the favor that Israel had rejected. That is, Israel knew the grace of God, but they rejected the grace of God. And so then, when God poured out His grace on others, they were jealous and angry because they knew what they were missing. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Have you ever had occasion to give a gift to one child in your family? Perhaps some ice cream, or a piece of cake, or a toy. You can do that and everything is fine, right? Until kid number two sees what kid number one has. And kid number two realizes that they want it too, and they're not getting it, right? Then there is anger and jealousy, is there not? And if parents want to keep the peace, they find the same, or as exactly as can possibly be found, the same thing to give to kid number two. And just hope kid number three is not around to watch it. But you see, that's a picture of what's happening to Israel. The only way that Israel could be jealous and angry is if they understood what the other nation was getting. If they didn't know about it, if they didn't care about it, they wouldn't be jealous. They wouldn't be angry. Child number two is never angry when child number one gets an extra helping of beets. They know they don't want it. They know they don't desire it. Israel wants this, but they've rejected it. And so they're provoked to jealousy. Then Paul moves on to Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 1 to further that same point. He says, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I think this is my favorite lead-in verse in all of the Bible. What Paul's saying here is not only is it in the Bible, not only does Isaiah say it, but let me tell you, he is so bold. He is in your face about this. You can't miss this. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Paul is saying that Isaiah was very forthright with Israel. God had directed him in this prophecy. God is speaking through him. 
He says that God will be found even by those who do not seek Him. Even by those who did not ask for Him. Now, what we must understand is that God is not to blame if we do not believe the gospel. If we do not call upon the Lord. If we do not receive God's grace. God has sent the message. God has sent the messengers. He's given the call to believe. We are without excuse if we do not obey that call. And this is the second thing that the gospel does when it comes to us. It separates those who are disobedient from those who are obedient. Now, at first glance, this seems like a wrong way of talking, doesn't it? We don't think about the gospel and obedience in the same breath. The gospel's not about obedience, right? It's about faith. That's what Paul's been saying all along, right? Pastor, why are you bringing obedience into the gospel? Well, I'm not. Paul is. Paul could have just as easily said, but they have not believed the gospel. But he doesn't say that. He says they have not obeyed the gospel. You see, the answer here is yes and no. The gospel doesn't call us to be obedient in the sense of doing works to earn our salvation. But the gospel is also not just a nice suggestion for us. The gospel is a proclamation that is to be heard, believed, and obeyed. That is why Paul describes the rejection of the gospel as disobedience. And so the gospel is of no benefit to us unless we believe it and submit to it. That's actually what the word obey here means. It means to follow someone, to submit to someone. That's what that means. And the people of Israel had rejected the gospel. They had been unfaithful, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 3. That was also Isaiah's report. They have not believed what we have spoken That was the report in Hebrews chapter 4, describing the unbelief and the disobedience of Israel because they refused to believe the message of God by faith. It was Jesus' report in John chapter 12 as he was coming into Jerusalem to die for sinners. He quotes this very passage from Isaiah. And he says, they are disobedient and do not obey the gospel. And we see it all around us. All the time, as people hear the gospel and reject it as a waste of their time. But the gospel is good news. The third thing that the gospel brings when it comes to us is it brings about faith through the word. God is not stopped by the sin of man. God does not give up on the gospel. In fact, he knows exactly what he is doing and that all of his promises will be fulfilled. And so, right after quoting Isaiah to say that they have not believed the good news that was brought, Paul says this in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. We need faith to believe. We need to believe to call on the Lord. We need to call on the Lord to be saved. How can we do that? Especially when we see unbelief all around us. What it means is 
Faith doesn't depend on us. It's the work of Christ. How do we get faith? From hearing. How do we hear? Through the word of Christ. How does the word of Christ come to us? By the work of God commissioning his messengers to bring the message to sinners. And so Paul closes this chapter with another quotation. In verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Now this verse is also from Isaiah 65. It's actually the verse after the verse that Paul quotes in verse 20. Isaiah is telling us that some reject the gospel. But that should not leave us without any hope. Why? Because of verse 21. Even though we are disobedient and we are contrary, God still reaches out. He is reaching out to you today. Are you sitting here this morning and you know that you do not believe all that I am talking about? Do you know that you do not believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you here this morning because your parents made you come? Or are you here because you want to make your wife or your mother happy? God is stretching out his arms to you today. You can be saved. In spite of all your unbelief, in spite of all your hypocrisy, in spite of all your wasted time, the Lord reaches out to you in his mercy and his grace. Most church growth today is not by conversion. It is the result of people choosing one church over another church. Or of moving from one place to another place. Are you praying for church growth? Are you praying that it would come about through the spread of the gospel? Do you long to hear about sinners... Coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Are you working to that end? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? May our feet be beautiful. And bring the good news of the gospel to our families, to our neighbors, and to our community. Let's pray.